0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4-10. through 10. Paul says, writing to the church there in Thessalonica, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, last week, we saw that Paul was thanking God that their response to his preaching, the gospel was real because of the evidence of their faith, hope and love. We looked at that last week, even in the midst, though, of severe persecution, but some may not Notice that in these verses, Paul's also defending himself. I don't know if you've caught that yet or not. He's showing the validity of his ministry among them since his arriving there was because of false accusations in other areas. And also because often, as it did happen often and happened there, after Paul left an area, false prophets would come in and badmouth Paul in the hopes of discrediting him. And so that's what we're going to deal with today a little bit, and we're going to get almost to the end of these verses. We'll deal in great detail of being spared of the wrath to come when we get together next time. Not next week, but in two weeks. But we're going to deal with a chunk of what's in these verses. And I want to take some time to show you what happened to Paul and what happened to Paul regularly in his ministry, what happened to him when he was there in Thessalonica, and then after he left there and went to the next place in Berea, and so on. But I want you to kind of kind of understand a little bit of why Paul is writing the way he does. Go to Acts 17, verses 1 through 5. Kind of catch us up with something we looked at earlier in our introduction to the book. In Acts chapter 17, look at verse, actually we'll go through verses 15. Acts chapter, Acts chapter 17, 1 through 15. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And they, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men." But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come up to him soon as possible, they departed. So if you've been following Paul's ministry, remember he was in Philippi before what we just read here in chapter 17 of Acts, and he was in Philippi, and he cast the demons out of those girls and got beaten and put in a cell, and the jailer and his family get saved. And then the magistrates come and say, would you guys please leave? They leave there. They then go to Thessalonica, and when they get to Thessalonica, people start getting saved. The church be- begins, and... A bunch of people in the city don't like it, and they cause some problems. They start falsely accusing Paul of having wrong motives and trying to cause an insurrection against the Romans and all this stuff, which isn't what he was doing. He wasn't there to change the government. He was there to tell people about Jesus. At the same time, they caused such a problem, they moved on, went to Berea. When they got to Berea, as the gospel is starting to spread there and the people are responding, some of those people that were in Thessalonica came and started causing problems for Paul there. And then he went on to Athens and so on. And if you read any of Paul's letters, you'll know that even when he writes to the Corinthians and others, he spends a lot of time trying to defend his ministry. And you're going to see that in just a little bit here in our book as well. Uh, We also see that in Philippians chapter 1, how some people are preaching Christ out of good motives. Others are preaching it to make Paul looked bad. And so keep in mind, Paul's written back to this church after hearing from Timothy that they've survived, that their faith is real, and they actually think kindly of Paul. And that makes him feel good because he didn't really know whether or not his ministry there was in vain or going to be received well, because he knew one thing. He wasn't there very long. It was really rough persecution while he was there. He knew that after he left, there not only were people complaining about him when he was there, there were people bad-mouthing him after he left. And And then he goes to the next place and those people chase him to the next town. Now, we're going to get into some really cool, interesting things about this, but let me go back, go back with me to the first Thessalonians and look at, again, chapter one, verses four and five. And you'll start seeing now some of the things he's been saying and they hopefully make a little bit more sense. He said, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know... What kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Jump over to chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 8. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. These are all things he's being accused of. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now you see, he's defending, look, I hope you understood our heart while we were there. We've been accused of being in it for the money. We've been accused of being in it to to deceive you and, and all these other things that aren't true. And actually, if you study Paul's writings, especially like I said in the book of Corinthians, he talks about the fact that even though as apostles, they should have had their... Funds taken care of by the church because that was God's design and God had written that in his word so that nobody would think we were in it for the money. We actually didn't take advantage of the right that we had. And we actually worked with our own hands to provide for our own needs. That's why i got to be honest with you folks who are just to preacher ministries. You hopefully have heard over and over. We don't charge. We never want anybody to think we're in this for the money. We're not about the, in this for the money. We just going to we want you to hear the word of God. And we never want to say to somebody, unless you give a donation, we won't teach you the word of God. And we want to make sure you understand our desires, that you know the word. Oh, by the way, you may not know it, but Jim Johnson is not loved everywhere I go. (laughs) And, And I started in the ministry as a pastor. I used to try to make everybody in the church happy. It about killed me. And even in a traveling ministry, I don't like it when I go places and after I leave, people say, well, yeah, but he only said that because this, that, or the other, and I'm not going to get into the things I've been accused of. There are people that disagree with my theology, and they think, well, he's just one of them. And you can't put me in a box because I don't follow trends. I don't follow groups or systems. I want to just teach you the whole of Scripture. But you know what? As Paul had to come to realize, and I've had to come to realize as well, you have to do whatever it is you're doing for the Lord, knowing that one day you will stand before Him. Because you know what? Even though you may not be preachers, you deal with those same things as well. People question your motives, they question your, what you're doing and why you're doing them. And you can spend a lot of your time defending yourself, or you can just put your eyes back on the Lord. Go to Acts chapter 20. Paul wasn't ignorant of how Satan works. Look at verses 29 through 30. Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30. He told the leaders of the church in Ephesus, he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, your own numbers, will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them." If there's a group of people that all of a sudden start saying, you know what, I really like so-and-so's teaching, there's going to be others who get jealous of that. Now, even though Paul's ministry was from God, he lived continually, like we talked about, with attacks on him and his message and his character. But Paul continued on in faithfulness because he knew a few things that will help us to persevere. And there's three things I want to bring out about Paul's life that will hopefully help you understand how you too can persevere with attacks that may be going on against you, even from within your family. Some of you might have family members that don't know the Lord and they think you're off your rocker. And they think you're, well, let's just say, they not only think you're wrong, they think you're crazy. All right? I'm going to give you three things from Paul's life that helped him from Scripture, I see, that helped him be faithful with what he knew was the truth. Here's the first one. Have you ever thought about the fact why Paul couldn't get immediately mad at all these people that were chasing him everywhere he went and accusing him of of being a phony? He was one, wasn't he? He used to be one of those people. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. You're in 1 Thessalonians. Turn over a couple of books to 1 Timothy Go to chapter 1, look at verses 12 through 17. Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 12 of Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Oh, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, and only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I wasn't only one of them. I was the worst. Remember when Paul met Jesus? He was on the road to Damascus. Was he going there to bring a love offering to the church? No, he was going there with permission to arrest them and have them put to death. He was standing there when Stephen was stoned, holding everyone's coats. That's an approval right there. Holding everybody's coats so they could throw the rocks better. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Listen to how Paul describes His himself in this area, in this passage, Galatians one verses ten through twenty four. In Galatians chapter one, starting in verse ten, Paul says, "For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ." but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him uh, with him, fifteen days." But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me." One of the things that kept Paul going and with his eyes on the Lord was he knew he used to be just like those people that were out to get him. And folks, I want you to allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart a little bit. I think it's something that happens to us as Christians is we forget who we used to be as well. We at one time didn't understand. We at one time thought that the, the gospel was foolishness. And folks, some of the things that they're doing to you, you've done to others. And so... The Bible says we're to forgive others in the same way in which God has forgiven us. And Paul lived with a reminder of the fact that if the same God who chased me down while I was doing all those things the people are doing to me can save me, he can save them too. And that's why he left those people to God. That's why in Philippians 1, like we just talked about, he said some people are preaching with the right motives, others are preaching out of the wrong motives that make me look bad and to, to try to defeat me and all. And he said, You know what? The gospel's being preached. Even if the motives are wrong, the gospel's being preached. And I'm going to let God take care of who's right and who's wrong. I'm going to keep my eyes on the Lord. Satan wants you to get distracted by those who are out to get you. And you can spend all your time when you're supposed to be going in this direction for the Lord doing this. Hey, guys, let's get this fixed. No, you just keep serving the Lord and let him bring it all to fruition. So the first thing he understood, that he understood that helped him persevere and keep going in faith was he had done the same things. The second thing was this. He also knew his battle was really not with man, but with the spiritual forces of evil. You all know this from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, folks. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I had a neat experience yesterday when I was on an airplane. Again, I never sit down on an airplane with the desire to share the gospel with the person next to me. I'm going to be honest with you. My wife will tell you it's true. She's flown with me many times. I want the window seat so I can put my head against the window and go to sleep. And I'm gifted. I can be asleep before they go through the safety procedures. I don't think I've heard any of those fully in a long time. I might wake up for the free Coke, but I sometimes don't even that. But yesterday on my second flight, sorry, first flight from Detroit to Baltimore, both flights on Southwest were packed. So every seat's taken. I got my window seat and I got my head against the window and a lady asked to sit between me and this other guy. And I said, sure, come on. And I looked over, and she had a book in her lap. And as I looked at the heading on the top of the book, in the right-hand side of her page, it said, The Red Horse. I look at it, I'm thinking, that's a book on the book of Revelation, talking about the second seal. And I said, what book is that? And she showed me the cover, and it was a book on Revelation, What Will Happen After the Rapture by Dr. David Jeremiah. I said, that's an awesome book by the way. I said, did you know I've written a book on the book of Revelation? And we got talking and I had the chance to pull out my phone and we used the Bible app on my phone and we were just going, she had a hunger for the word of God and she was a believer and she's part of a church in Connecticut and she's a part of a small group that meets and they really love prophecy and we got talking and she asked me this question though, later in the flight, she said, can I ask you another question just off the top? I said, sure, it'll be a dollar. I'm not in it for the money. I'm joking. So I said to her, I said this. I said, what's your question? She said, why does the world hate the Jews? I said, they don't hate the Jews. She goes, no, they really do. The world hates the Jews. I go, no, they don't hate the Jews. They hate the God of the Jews. Everybody thinks they're going after the Jews. But actually, Satan's only going after the Jews to get after God. You see, God's made all these prophecies that you've been reading about how all this stuff's going to happen in Israel and centered in Jerusalem, and Jesus is going to come back there and set up his kingdom. And the prophecies say the nation of Israel has to be in the place at that time, and there's going to be another temple for the Antichrist to step into. All these things you've been studying are tied to the nation of Israel, and Satan knows he doesn't want Jesus coming back, and he wants to stop Jesus. The best way he knows he can stop him is to get rid of the Jews. And if there's no Jews, Jesus can't come back and fulfill the prophecies. just like Satan tried to get Jesus to sin once because if he can sin once, then he won't be the sinless sacrifice and all God's plans are ruined. The world doesn't hate the Jews. It's the world system and Satan behind it who actually hate God and Jesus. And they're going after them. And I said in John 15, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And it really has nothing to do with you except the fact that you're tied to me. Folks, these people that are out to get you, Even if they're family members, they're really not out to get you. Understand where it's really coming from. Remember how when Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed, and Peter says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to let this happen. And the Bible says Peter rebuked Jesus. What did Jesus say next? Get behind me, Peter. No, he knew who was really speaking. Folks, it'll make you easier on these people that need grace. If you understand who's really talking behind them and through them. And Paul understood that. So one, he knew he used to be one of those people. Two, he knew this wasn't against them, really. It was the one behind them. And there's a third thing. And because of this, he kept his eyes on God to please God and not man. For he knew he needed God's power and that God and God only would be his judge. Again, if you spend your time trying to defend yourself to people, you're wanting to be judged by people. Who's the only real judge? God. So don't worry about how much people approve or disapprove, but also know that you're going to stand before God. Oh, by the way, that also is a caution to you about following certain preachers hook, line and sinker. All of us are flawed. None of us have it fully grasped. We're still learning as we continue to study the word of God. And hopefully the pastors that you listen to and the people, the Bible teachers that God has in your life are humble enough to say, look, I'm still studying it myself. But when they think they've already got it all figured out, when they've got their systems and everything's all set and they just say, look, believe what I believe. You've all of a sudden started to follow man and you're living to please man. And when you stand before God and he holds you accountable for everything he said, And you say, well, Lord, I believed everything Tony Evans said. Or I believe everything Jim Johnson said. He's going to say, look, I'm going to deal with Tony Evans, and I'm going to deal with Jim Johnson when it's their turn. Right now, I want to talk to you about what I sent you. I want to encourage you. Listen to teachers. But the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're to test the prophecies, hold on to what is good, reject what's not. Well, how am I to know, Jim? Jim? Well, do you have the Holy Spirit that wrote the book within you? He will show you. So don't live to please man; live to please God. Isn't that what Paul just said in Galatians one? He goes, "I want you to understand what I'm teaching you. I didn't get it from man. I'm not parroting my denomination's theology. I don't follow Sproul. I don't follow. You understand? There's nothing wrong with Sproul, and there's nothing wrong with other preachers. But don't believe everything they say. You're not a disciple of these teachers." You're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you need to understand that when you just follow a certain person and believe everything they say, you're living to please man and not God. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 again. Look at verse 6. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute, Jim. Doesn't that go against what you just said? Well, let me show you one more verse that might make you think that, and then I'll clarify it. So go to Philippians chapter 4. Go to Philippians chapter 4, look at verses 4 through 9. In Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, or your gentleness, some of your translations, be known to everyone the lord is at hand do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god and the god of peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in christ jesus finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there's any any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise Think about these things. Now, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Wait a minute, Jim. Paul's saying, follow me and follow what I live and how I teach. That goes against everything that you just said. No, it doesn't. Listen closely. What was Paul's teaching? He was saying, rejoice in who? In the Lord. And he says, and the God of peace... Even though you don't have understanding, God will grant you the peace, not my philosophies and my systems will make make you comfortable. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter, no, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm sorry, I'm going back and forth on myself. I'm thinking it's 1 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul said this Be imitators of me. As I am of Christ. When he was saying, be a mentator of me. Follow what you've seen in me. He wasn't saying follow my theology or my systems or my... You understand what I'm saying? He was was simply saying this. He says, I want you to follow the fact that I follow Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, Paul said... It's God who gave the apostles, who gave the prophets, who gave the evangelists, who gave the pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, so that we'll no longer be infants tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching and every cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming, but we will all grow up into him who is the head. Into who? Into Jesus Paul said, those of us who've been given the role to teach the Word of God and to preach the Word of God are to have you say, imitate us as we follow Christ and you follow Christ. If they say, follow me, remember how we read in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, how these guys are going to come in to have disciples follow after them? That's not a good thing. And Paul was not only teaching people not to follow man, but to follow Christ he himself didn't try to please man, but he desired to please Christ. Paul also encouraged them that their God was already using their faith as a testimony to others in the areas of Macedonia and Achaia. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a second. I'm going to show you one more thing. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses one Through 5 Let's wrap up what we just talked about, about not following man, but trusting the Lord. Paul describes it wonderfully as he's defending himself again here in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. He said, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Go to verse 6, though, too. He said this, I have also applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. A lot of people, unfortunately, as they start to grow in Christ, they might find a teacher that God uses to help them understand the word. And all of a sudden, that's the only person they're going to follow. Don't do it. You become a man pleaser instead of a God pleaser. Now, like I just said in a few seconds ago, before I realized I wanted to go back and tie that all together, Paul also encouraged them that their God was already using their faith as a testimony to others in the areas of Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia, by the way, in Achaia is Greece. And also other areas. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10. He says, you also became an example. Just like we want you we want to be an example for you guys, you guys became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. They already know. They've already heard about you. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We have a tendency to think that God only uses preachers to spread His message. I see you shaking your head over there. You're right. He doesn't. But let's be honest, we kind of do. It's just amazing how many people just assume if you've been to seminary, God's going to use you more than he can use me. Go to Matthew 5. Look at verses 14 through 16. I'm going to spend a little bit of time showing you from the scriptures that actually I think, and I'll explain why in just a little bit, I think God can use what we call the lay person more than the person that's been to seminary. Go to Matthew 5. Look at verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, you are the light of the world, those of you that went to seminary. Is that what he says? No. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light. To all in the house, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Was he talking just to the preachers here or is he talking to everyone? Remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount. There was a massive crowd of people that had gathered to hear him teach. Go to John chapter 4. I bet you there were even in this group a load of people that couldn't read. Go to John chapter 4. Look at verses 21. Through 30. We're going to catch you up to where we are. Jesus is having a conversation with the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, verses 21 through 30, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Now God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Now, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, before I go further, because we're going to read some more in John, I want you to keep in mind what just happened and why this conversation that we jumped into here in verse 19 I mean so we start in verse 21 look at verse 19 the woman said to him sir i perceive that you're a prophet our fathers worshipped on this mountain but you say that in jerusalem is the place to people ought to worship in other words he goes she goes look we've been taught by our teachers that we're to worship here in the northern country but you guys say that worship has to happen in jerusalem and jesus begins to teach her about the fact that the holy spirit's going to be coming And everyone's going to be able to worship him in spirit and truth. And these are the people that he wants to worship him. It's not really the where as much as the heart. And in the middle of her saying, well, I know that the Messiah is coming. Do you all realize the first person we ever have recorded that Jesus says, I am the Messiah, is a woman? A Samaritan woman who actually was there at noontime to avoid the people of her town because of her lifestyle? And upon coming to think that Jesus might be the Christ, she hasn't come to full faith yet, has she? She says, this might be. She actually goes into the town and starts, these are the people she's avoiding. She goes into the town and starts speaking to everyone, saying, look, I think I might have found the Messiah, guys. Well, look at now at verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. This is the Messiah. How did these people get saved? Because some guy went to seminary, got trained and learned all the ways to teach the systems and the dogmas. no. This woman said, you know what? I think this is the guy. And let me tell you what he did in my life. And as she shared, the spirit of God moved. I'm going to go there sooner than I planned. But let me say something to you. When people like me who have been. Well, I'm paid to preach, aren't I? Isn't that how I make my living? And I've been uh, to seminary and I've been trained and I've been pastors of churches around the country. When I speak the word, there's a lot of people that say, Jim, you're getting paid to say that. Are there people that preach the gospel for the paycheck? Are there people that don't even believe it that preach it for the paycheck? Doesn't have a lot of power, does it? But when somebody that's not paid to say it shares, folks, this is the truth. They can't refute it that you're in it for the wrong motives. They're also going to see the change in your life because they're going to go, admit, she's one of me, you know? Years ago, when I was pastor here at First Baptist in Atlantic, a man who's already with the Lord, Gary Tuggle. Not Tuggle, Tuttle. I always get there's a Tuggle in one church and a Tuttle in another. It's Gary Tuttle, who was here. He uh, he led a young man to the Lord who was dating his daughter. His name was Tim. And Tim, not many months after he got saved, Tim passed away. And as we were going to have the funeral for Tim, God made clear to me that I wasn't to preach Tim's funeral, but Gary was to preach Tim's funeral. Do you know a bunch of people got saved at that funeral? And I got mad. I didn't have people get saved at my funerals very often. And then on top of that, the funeral director called me. After the funeral, he called me the next week and he said, Jim, I want to tell you something. I said, what's that? He goes, I have been to thousands of funerals as a funeral director. And that's the first time I heard the gospel. I said to him, you've been to ones I've done. I've preached the gospel. He goes, yeah, but I didn't hear it. But when I was surprised by the fact that you were letting this guy, by the way, at the time, Gary worked for the IRS. When you were having this guy who works for the IRS preach, he goes, I stood in the back and I listened and I heard it. Folks, we have, well, the word of God's powerful, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but we have in our minds limited what God can do by relegating the sharing of the truth to the professionals. Just share with people what you know well, Jim, I don't understand about all this doctrine. I, what do you know? Share with them. What did the lady share with those people? He told me everything I ever did. This is what he did to me. This is what he did in my life. Just share that. you will be amazed how God will have set you appointments till you'll talk to somebody that needed to hear what he did in your life. Stop waiting until you're ready. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses fourteen and fifteen. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Not interesting. He says, first of all, stop grumbling, stop fighting, stop quarreling, and realize you're children of God, and just go shine in this world. It's a crooked and twisted generation. By the way, is it easy to shine when it's really dark? It's getting pretty easy to shine right now, isn't it? Stop waiting until you're trained, and let the Lord use you. I love it. The to do. The darker the storm, the greater the light. I like it. Yep. You know the story in Acts chapter 4. We're not going to turn there, but in verse 13. Remember the disciples of Jesus were preaching after Jesus had been crucified and had gone back to the Father? What did the, the religious leaders say? These are just ignorant, ordinary men. And they took note, what? That they had been with Jesus. These are fishermen. These are tax collectors. These are the people we despise. Yet, we can't refute. Something's happened. We can't argue with the fact that this guy was healed, (laughs) you know? And none of them, besides the three years with Jesus, had been to school. Paul, even though he didn't need to, though, used these believers as an encouragement to other believers in his preaching. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 1 again. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by you, that God's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And, you, and then he goes on, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. And keep reading in verse 7 and, and, and following now, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols and served the living and true God. But even though he didn't need to say anything, he actually began to use them as an example. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 1 here and look at verses 3 and 4 here. He says, We ought always to to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you, in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all the persecutions all your persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. Even though he didn't need to, he still used them as an example. He bragged on that church. You want an example? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me give you an example where he bragged on this, these churches in Macedonia that he's writing to. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He's talking to the church there in Corinth about a promise that they had made to give a love offering to the poor people in Jerusalem. And he uses the Macedonians as an example. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 5. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about their need to keep their promise to give the gift that they said that they were going to give. But he said, let me give you an example There are some churches over there in Macedonia that have been through some severe persecution, and they're not wealthy, and they actually gave a lot. And they actually weren't forced to give. By the way, I don't know if you notice or not, but I do that. As I travel around, I'll use stories of what God's doing in churches that allow him to do things by his power, and I'll use them to tell other churches, to encourage them, look, if you'll humble yourself and let God work through you, he can use you. Let me tell you about a church back in Florida. Let me tell you about a church over here in Virginia and these types of things. I've bragged on churches all around the country to other, about other churches. I, I'm going to brag real quick on one real quick. Over here in Melbourne, First Baptist Melbourne, they probably get mad that I'm going to do this, but it's all right. I'm going to do it anyway. They're in the middle of a huge building program. And when I say huge, it's a multi-million dollar building program. And it's actually been delayed for quite a bit, which is a part of building. But in the midst of all this, when they ended their budget year, they had a surplus of giving. And you would think the natural reaction would be to put it towards your building to speed up the finishing of the building. They felt like God told them he gave them extra to share. And they wrote $10,000 checks to other churches in this association as a gift, with their surplus from their giving at the end of the year. Oh, I could go on. There's other churches as well. But let me just tell you, isn't that an encouragement to you? Isn't it neat to hear this? We hear lots of the stories of the churches that are a mess and fighting with each other and falling apart and all that. Isn't it an encouragement to hear that there are churches that are actually following God? That's what Paul did. He said, I don't have to. Word's already spread, but I... I'm going to use you guys as an example to others. Let me ask you a question. Could somebody brag on you? Could somebody tell somebody else? Let me tell you about a friend of mine. They may not name your name, but do they use you as an example of faith and hope and love? Do they say, let me tell you how this person responded to the loss of their spouse? Let me tell you how this person responded to their cancer diagnosis. Let me tell you how this person responded to the loss of their job. Let me tell you how this person responded to this persecution of whatever it is. And let me tell you how this person's generous. Let me tell you how this person does has and God is alive, is he not? He's able to live his life through us in a way that is supernatural, is he not? Are people seeing it in you? Are people able to use you as an example? You know what we do in our family sometimes? Actually, not sometimes. We've done it a lot now. When it's their birthday, we eulogize them. At their birthday party, we sit around the table or restaurant or where we are, and the rule is this. I've been doing, as a pastor, funerals for so many years. It grieves me to see how much everybody brags on the person that just died. And I've sat there thinking, I wish we would say these things while they're still alive. Why do we say all this stuff after they die? And so we've done it. It's a part of our tradition in our family now. If it's your birthday, you can't say anything because you're dead. (laughs) This is how we do it to make it fun. You have to sit there, you're dead. And now around the table, and it usually is more than just one. They usually take laps. They tell everybody else, say, Nicole was dead. Let me tell you about Nicole and what I how I saw Jesus in Nicole, or Dad. Dad's dead. Let me tell you what I saw in Dad, and we bless that person by bragging on the Jesus in them. And every now and then, because you, your flesh wants to go ah, but ah, and you want to you want to say something, and everybody goes no 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 no, no. you're dead. <laughs> you can't say anything, folks. I'm telling you, if you do it, there's going to be tears. There's a joy. We need to encourage each other. Don't just tell others about. Tell them if you see Jesus in them. I tell people all the time. I was at this men's conference last weekend in Detroit. And I am in this conference center at a campground in Michigan. And I'm with 80 men. Wearing jeans and t-shirts. And I didn't shave the whole weekend. It was awesome. I love doing men's retreats. And I got up there. When I started speaking to these guys and I just simply said this, I said, hang on for a second. Before we get started, let me tell you, after just listening to you guys sing at the top of your lungs, what an encouragement you are to me. You know why? He said, I told him, I said, because the Bible says that I'm an alien in this planet and I know I am. And I feel like it. And I like the fact that I got some more aliens with me tonight. You know, you're an encouragement to each other just by showing up. Go to First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Notice also what others were saying about the believers in Thessalonica. We'll deal with verse 10 next time we get together in two weeks, but look at verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They bragged on the fact that they turned to God from what? From their idols. But they didn't just turn to God for salvation. They turned to God to do what? I heard it. Say it again, Jack. Good. To serve him. This is important. If your salvation is, you believe, so Jesus will take you to heaven... I want to double check, because the Bible is very, very clear. 2 Chronicles 5.15 says that we no longer live for ourselves. We live for the one who died for us. I know a lot of people that say they're Christians, and they still live a sinful life. But they say, I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I prayed the prayer. But they're not living for Jesus. They're not turning from their sin to serve the Lord. The Bible, Jesus himself said, unless you're willing to forsake and follow You can't be my disciple. He even said, look, before you, people said, hey, I want to come follow you. He said, you might want to double check and recount and count the cost. This isn't going to be an easy believism. If you think, praise God, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven, but you have no desire to serve him. You might want to double check. They turned from their idols. That word turned, by the way, is a picture of repentance. Go to Acts chapter 3. Acts 3 verses 17 through 19. In Acts chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Look at what he says. Repent. Turn. Turn away from sin to follow and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Acts chapter 20. Look at verses 17 through 21. Acts 17 through through 21. And from Miletus, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17 through 21. Now, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of what? Repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, I'm going to ask you a question. When you got saved, did you turn from your sin and start to follow Jesus? Or did you just say, I'm going to keep going down the road I'm on. Jesus, could you just mark me as one of your people going to heaven? They turned from their dead idols, things that could not save them, to the living and true God. You remember what the angels said when the woman went to the tomb? He's not here. He's risen. Why do you look for the living among the dead? John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the what? And the life. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation... He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Your brain wants to jump to the living God. No, to serve the living God. How do the writers of the New Testament describe themselves as a slave of Jesus Christ? Folks, is that something else somebody would say about you? Not that they believe in Jesus, but that this individual is living for Jesus. There's been a change in their life. That's one of the things I've enjoyed in this 17 years of traveling is I go to a lot of churches. One of the two churches I spoke at to this past weekend in Detroit, I've worked with for 16 years. Some of those men that we shared bunk beds with there in the cabins for a weekend, I've known for a long time. And one of the neat things is to watch them grow in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. To see the evidence of their real salvation as they continue to learn how to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. As Becky and I are heading to Galax, Virginia in October. We've been going in every May and every October for 10 plus years. And these people have become close to us and we love them and can't wait to go hang out with them. And there's three Mexican restaurants in this little <laughs> town, but we're going to eat Mexican food, you know. And, but at the same time, we're watching them grow in their walk with the Lord. And I say to them as well, I hope you're seeing a growth in us. Because we're not talking about praying a prayer to go to heaven. We're talking about turning from sin to serve God. And they were waiting for who? Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We see all through the Scriptures that we are living for Christ down here, but we're also mindful and looking for Jesus to come back and take us to where He is. Isn't that what the Scripture teaches? We're not taught to watch out for the Antichrist. The church has been taught to watch for Jesus. John 14, verses 1-3, through Jesus says, You believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. Acts chapter 17, where we just read, where they're told to turn in repentance toward God. He then says, and to wait for his son from heaven. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 13 talks about how we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul in 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18 talks about how Jesus is God, God's going to bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him and we are alive are going to be caught up and go be with the Lord and go meet with him in the air. Folks, the Bible is very, very clear that the church is not only to turn from sin to serve God while we're here, but while we're serving him down here, we're looking for his return at any moment. Well, Jim, it's been 2,000 years. It doesn't change the fact that he wants us to always be ready and watching. You know why? Here's why. If you knew when you got saved, to say in 1973, that Jesus' return wasn't going to be until 2025. And I didn't just prophesy, so stop that. (laughs) Some of you would be lazy. Some of you would wait and cram like I used to when it was test day. Or if I had a book report due the next night, I'd go get the book in the library the night before. We've all done it. It's in our nature. And God knew one of the ways that he would have us ready is to say, I'm not telling you when I'm coming back. And it could be at any moment. Oh, I know the day, but I can't tell you. It'll not let you and your flesh work the way you should be ready at any moment. And at the same time, um, as I've said before, if you die today, Jesus is coming in your lifetime. Are you ready? Because you could wait till 2020, 2025. That doesn't mean you're making it to 2025. And your beam of seat will happen before that. Now, there's plenty more scriptures that talk about how we're to be watching for Jesus, but I think you get the idea. Paul expected Jesus' return in his lifetime, did he not? How many times did he say, and we who are alive will be caught up? Did he also not say in 1 Corinthians 15, we're not all going to sleep, we are going to be changed? He expected it in his lifetime, and so should you and I. But here's the question. Look at verse 10, and we'll close with this to set us up for when we come in two weeks. That they were to turn toward serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The question we're gonna deal with in two weeks when we get back together is this Is this wrath to come that Paul is talking about, the wrath of hell, that he spares us from hell, or the tribulation period, which is the time of God's wrath on the earth? Which is it? Well, I will answer that question in two weeks. Until then, I love you. We'll see you then.